It arises directly from the Iraqi regime's own actions, its history of aggression, and its drive toward an arsenal of terror. It possesses and produces chemical and biological weapons. It is seeking nuclear weapons. Members of Congress of both political parties and members of the United Nations Security Council agree that Saddam Hussein is a threat to peace and must disarm. The same tyrant has tried to dominate the Middle East, has invaded and brutally occupied a small neighbor has struck other nations without warning and holds an unrelenting hostility toward the United States. Saddam Hussein is a homicidal dictator who is addicted to weapons of mass destruction. The neocons are back, baby! Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? Look, I take no glee in this announcement but the neocons they just got a big jolt of lightning right back into what i thought was already gone i thought it was gone and it ain't our our very short-lived temporary alliance with the true america first MAGA movement seems to be on life support i know there are many that are trump supporters MAGA, America first, that do actually mean it when they say this. So I'm not directing this at you. But the broader political establishment that allegedly represents America first has shown their true colors in a very harsh fashion this past week. And we're going to have to go through some of it. Before I do that, I wanted to give you just kind of a, a brief synopsis of my assessment after two weeks of deep diving the Israeli-Palestine uh, conflict. And obviously it didn't just start two, three weeks ago. Um, but I, because I wanted to be able to speak on it more intelligently, I, you know, I took my rudimentary understanding and then I dove deep trying to really get to the bottom of it. And first off, I want to say, don't take my word for anything. Like, I, I looked up a, a ton of different sources, ton of different mediums even to come to these conclusions, but don't, don't just trust me. You know, if you have, if you have the time, absolutely go, go research this on your own. What I have found is that most people, if they, well, most people in America, I think don't really have a strong opinion. It's the one on, it's the ones online that have a very strong opinion, but for those that do have a strong opinion, I have still found that the vast majority of them don't know the history of this region very well or at all. And that was kind of where I was falling short up until recently. And so I started to, to dig in. And, you know, I, I always approach land disputes, which is really what this is. A lot of people want to frame it as a religious war. I don't think that that's a fair assessment because you can actually look at the history of the Jewish people and they were actually, they got along much better with the Arab world than they did the European world or the Russian world for that matter. Um, so, you know, from my vantage point, it is not so much a religious war. It may, it may be taking on those tones today, but I, in terms of the origination of this conflict, I don't think that it was just re religious animus that led us here. Um, so it really begins in the late 1800s you have the foundational uh, Zionist movement where 
the Jewish people who have been chased off of their land repeatedly through what are called pogroms, they are just scattered to the wind, into the diaspora, as it's called. And they're trying to find anywhere where they can just put down roots. And most of them have kind of just like immersed themselves in other countries that are under different religions and uh, just kind of keeping their heads down. But because they, this anti-Semitic thing keeps arising, they keep getting chased off their land, sometimes violently, uh, you know, sometimes through legal means, but the pogroms in particular were just horrific, absolutely horrific. So in the late 1890s, the, uh, the Zionist movement takes hold. They have actual like meetings where some of the more, you know, affluent as well as just some of the more, uh, zealous Zionists meet up and, and they start to formulate this plan for a homeland and in it, they're trying to, I'm, I'm not doing this with any notes. This is, you know, just a brief synopsis based off of all of my readings. Um, so they, they meet up and they, they start to decide on like where they want to locate it. And they float around a bunch of different ideas. There was no, like, it was not deemed from the very beginning that like, we have to have Jerusalem. This must be, you know, the, the land of our, our origination or anything like that. They just wanted a safe place basically to create a land where it would be predominantly Jewish or, or exclusively even. And they reach out through world war one. It's actually really a fascinating story, but in world war one, the leadership of the, uh, the British is trying to find a way to survive the war because it's really existential. And they, because of their more anti-Semitic worldview, they think that they have to offer an olive branch to the Jewish community because they thought that they would be the financiers, financiers rather, uh, for their wars. So they, the, the Zionist movement reaches out to them and says, well, Hey, how about you grant us a homeland? And what do you know? They do. The problem is that that landmass of Palestine was not empty. By no stretch of the imagination was it vacant. But let me back up slightly. From 1900, once they have already decided on where they're going to be setting up you know, what will eventually become Israel, they start to migrate there peacefully. And they are just moving into Palestine and they're acquiring land. They're purchasing it. They're starting to you know, kind of immerse themselves in the community. They're farming. They're do doing commerce. You know, just really becoming part of the Palestinian society. But after they get this grant from the British, uh, 1917, which essentially states that they're like, this is going to be their homeland. Uh, things start to, to escalate and some of the more radical versions of Zionists, um, they start to kind of do it in a way that is much more antagonistic towards the locals. There's uprisings. There's all sorts of things that transpire. I, obviously, I'm I'm covering a tremendous amount of time, so I can't give it give you all of the details. But by 1948, which is really the foundation of of Israel, there is still over two thirds of the population in the land of Palestine is uh, you know Palestinians or Arabs, the people that were there for 
a hundred plus years and had deeds from a libertarian perspective. This is what I care about most because I'm functioning off of property rights. They actually had deeds to these properties and the, the plan from the United Nations because of this dictate from the British empire is that it's going, this landmass, which is formerly Palestine will be split 50, 50. It's not 50-50, like straight in half, but it's going to be split. 50% of the land will be to the Jewish people. 50% will be to the Arabs or the Palestinians, whatever you want to call them. And because the Palestinians, obviously, they own more of that land. And there's there's a lot more of them there at the time, 750,000 of them. Plus, uh, they don't much care for that. And that's when what's called the Nakba starts. And it's where over 100 uh, Palestinians were were killed in a conflict um, and 750,000 Palestinians eventually fleed. Now they left with their keys though. When they, when they fled, they did not expect to not be able to return, but they weren't ever able to return. And by the time they were able to return or attempt to, the land had already been divided. And, and I think that, you know, not going through all of the intifadas and everything else, I think that I just wanted to lay out kind of the foundational basis by which I think that the Palestinians have legitimate grievance that many of these people we're talking 75 years ago, many of these people are still alive. They still have the deeds. They still have the keys <laughs> to these properties. And if they don't, certainly their children do. And as of, as it stands today, you now have, uh, you know, millions of Palestinians that are the lineage or the progeny of these people who were truly aggrieved uh, that are forced into what I think is fairly described as an open air prison, Gaza in particular. The West Bank is not good, uh, but compared to Gaza, uh, it's kind of a dream <laughs> based off of what I've seen out of Gaza. Gaza is rough, like really, really rough. Over 50% unemployment rate. Um, all of their water, power, gas, electricity, internet, everything is controlled by Israel. They are, they get to dictate, you know, essentially what goes in. They even had plans at one point on where they like analyzed how much food would be allowed in based off of what the minimal caloric intake was necessary to maintain the population. So this is like pretty creepy, egregious stuff. Um, now from the Israeli side, a lot of them aren't even privy to the negotiation processes um, that have transpired over the past 40 years as they've tried to come up with a two-state solution, which would have formalized the partition and allowed for there to be an actual Palestinian state. What a, what a lot of people don't understand is that there's not really a Palestinian state at this point. They have the PA, which is the Palestinian Authority, which is the government of Gaza, but it's like, it's not really formal because, well, one, they haven't had elections in... 17 years, uh, but also they just don't have any say over their economy or their lives really. Cause they're not, they're not a nation. They are patrolled constantly. They're totally walled off on the Eastern side where Israel is. And then in the water, they're actually patrolled as well. And they can only fish out to a certain distance. And if they go further than that, they'll get shelled by the Navy, uh, Israeli Navy, Navy. It's terrible. I mean, I understand, I understand the dy dynamic here where 
you know, the Israelis are very fearful. They're fearful of, there's a lot of people in Palestine, particularly Gaza, that hate them. But I think it's important anytime you look at these situations to try and understand the why. Why do they hate them? Is it just anti-Semitism? Is it just racial or religious enmity? Is that all it is? And I think that if, if you're fair-minded and you actually look through this, you can see that that's not all it is. It's very legitimate grievances. Like, we can't do anything <laughs> without your approval. We, we are essentially, you know, a ward of the Israeli state. It, they don't, they can't do anything without like the Israeli permission. Their, their entire economy is embargoed. So a lot of people have been saying, well, why would the, why do the Israelis have to give them internet? Why do they have to give them electricity? It's like, well, because it's their prison colony. Like that's really what it is. They don't have any capacity to do stuff on their own for the most part because their entire, the inlet is totally regulated. I think there's six different entrances and exits. All of them are closed right now, but even when they were open before, most of the people within Gaza aren't allowed to go into Israel at all. And Egypt has been closed off for a long time, but they, some of them are allowed to, to come and go for work and things like that. But, but the vast majority of people in, in Palestine over the past, or in Gaza specifically, because that's really what I've been focused on, because that's where the conflict is. Um, the vast majority of these people have lived there and never left. And we're talking about a 125 square mile landmass. That's it. That's all they've ever known. And it's like, I think I, I went into this expecting it to be more lopsided in the favor of the Israelis, you know, cause I knew about the terrorist attacks and, uh, you know, I, I had heard about the peace negotiations to try and come to some sort of agreement between the two sides. Um, but once you actually dig into it and you actually study the negotiations, it has never been fair to the Palestinians. Never. Like the, the offers, you know, if they were legitimate, which I think most of them were not, um, they just never, it never got done. Whoever you want to blame for that, it never got done. It never got, the two-state solution was never formalized. And as such, basically like a good analogy, I think for this would be like during World War II, when FDR put the Japanese in internment camps. I think in hindsight, we all agree that was atrocious and it shouldn't have happened. At least I hope we can all agree on that. That's kind of what this is. But instead of releasing them after the war, the Palestinians in Gaza in particular have just been stuck there ever since. Like 70 years. <laughs> so the, the original partition that is dictated by the UN, which obviously has no, in my estimation, has no legitimate authority to dictate that this landmass should be partitioned. Well, they do it. They do it anyways, um, because they're the UN and they have the backing of many of the militaries of Europe, which at the time were still the most dominant. And so you end up with two thirds of the population being stuck with half of the land. And what it ends up being today is the Israelis, the, the state of Israel has over 85% of the land. And they continue to do these settlements, which are not legal. They're not allowed to do that, but they do it anyways. So the Palestinians perspective is, well, 
we're like we're negotiating over a pizza, but the pizza continues to get eaten. Like while we're negotiating. So we can't ever really come to an agreement because I'm okay, I'll agree to this percentage split, but oh, you just ate another slice. So no, that wasn't really fair, was it? And that's that's their perspective on it. And I can't blame them for that. Like, yeah. <laughs> you continue to take more of our land. We've already been uh, you know, pushed off of our, our old land and and oh this is a, another part I left out. When they left uh during the Nakba, seven hundred and fifty thousand of them fleed. I think it was five or six hundred of their villages were just demolished so that when these people tried to return, their homes were gone. It's like, that's pretty criminal. Like, if that happened to any of us, we would also be aggrieved. We'd be like, this is, this is shitty. Why, would, why, did, why did you do that? That's terrible. Um, and that's what happened. So I, the, the reason that I, I wanted to give kind of the Palestinian side of things is just to explain why you would have such ter- terrible you know radicalization in that community i mean why wouldn't you right it's like it's not good ever to go after civilians it's a terrible thing terrorism is awful but you have to understand the backdrop you have to understand the why there's always a why and, and let, i mean you might have a one off that's just a lunatic who's born that way but the vast majority of people like you're not going to get people to do crazy things unless they have some sort of reasoning or process that got them there. And I think a lot of people in the West, because they, they haven't really dug into this issue, they just, they, they feed off of their prior propaganda through the war on terror that like Muslims, extremist Islam, that's what we're seeing here. And it's just as simple as that. But if you're a libertarian, if you're not an interventionist, you've already done this study. You already know that it's not just as simple as it being extremist Islam. Like, is extremist Islam a problem? Yes, I think it is. But why has it been fostered? And who has fostered it? This is not to take all of the culpability or responsibility of those that end up with that ideology off of their shoulders. If you become a terrorist, that's on you. But we also have to take some culpability for both the British as well as the Israeli, as well as the American empire that have been fostering these movements because they wanted to sow discord in these territories that they didn't control. And that's what they did. And that's exactly why Osama bin Laden attacked America on 9-11, explicitly stated. It was our support of Israel, bases in Saudi, and the trade embargo or the uh, full blockade against Iraq in the 1990s, which killed a half a million innocent people. So it's like, it is what he did on 9-11 okay? Of course not. <laughs> Obviously not. But you kind of understand the rationale, right? Like you start to see how their brains work, at least. It's not just this hatred of women in the bikinis at the beach. It's much more complex than that. It's because they care about their people, just like we care about their, our people. I think that the, the only way, and I mean this sincerely, I think that the only way you can view the Palestinians' plight and say, oh, that's just radical Islam, that's just anti-Semitism, is to really otherize them. And I never, I never talk like this, but it's really the truth. You have, to, you have to view them as something other than, other than us, less than us. And I don't view them that way. And it's sad to me that so many people seem to. I think it, it it demonstrates a tremendous 
um, ignorance as to how beautiful the Muslim perspective and community is. And I think that, you know, if you were to take the most extremist elements of American society or really any society and say, that's what Americans are, be like, that's not, that's not true. <laughs> it's not true. So are the Wahhabists really the, what, what the Muslim world is, uh, you know, signified by? No, it's, it's the anomaly. There's a couple billion Muslim people. How, mu how much terrorism is there in the world? How many of these people go on to become suicide bombers or something crazy? Very, very few. So it's just totally irrational. And it, and it really drives me crazy because it's such a collectivist line of thinking to view because there is Hamas, which is a very extremist terrorist organization, and go, well, that's just Wahhabist sect Islam. This is the problem with Islam. Sam Harris was right. Bill Maher was right. No, they're not right. And they haven't been right. And the war on terror gave us a lot of lessons. I, I recapped that on the last episode, so I won't do it again. But I, I'm really disturbed that there, this line of thinking is once again gaining traction. That these people are lesser. That the, the, the concerns for the million plus Palestinian kids, as if they could have any culpability for the actions of Hamas, obviously they don't, but they are somehow, if I, if I equally am concerned with the innocents killed on the Israeli side, as I am with the innocents being killed in this very moment in Gaza, that that is somehow some sort of moral equivalency as opposed to, yeah, they're innocents on both sides being killed and I should have the same amount of concern for them, right? People will say, well, Israel goes out of its way not to target the Palestinians. Not true. It's simply not true. They may not go to the extents that Hamas did to target civilians, but Israel is not doing everything in its power by any stretch of the imagination to actually preserve innocent Palestinian lives. And from my vantage point, it looks as if they want to make the circumstances in Gaza so hellacious that ultimately everybody flees and that land ultimately becomes Israel's. And I think that's where they're headed. And I think that's why the rest of the Muslim world is so pissed off. And I'll show you some videos as to what's happening all, all around the world. There's a lot of people, like millions of people in the streets on the behalf of the Palestinian situation here. And I'll grant you that a ton of those people in the streets will be ultimately my enemy because they are college students raised in the Marxist worldview that ultimately view this as an oppressor versus an oppressed thing and basically a battle against Western influence, which they are just arch enemies towards because, you know, the revolution must continue, that type of mentality. They're not my ally. I'm not naive. I understand, you know, just as I... I protested with Jackson Hinkle, who is ultimately a MAGA communist. I protested with him in Washington, D.C. in January against the war in Ukraine. From my vantage point, his affinity towards Vladimir Putin, he wants to see the American empire withdraw from that arena so that Russia can take Ukraine more readily. That was not the reason I was there. I, w I was there because I'd like to see peace. And most importantly, I would like to see the Americans withdraw. And this is where, you know, 
people in my non-interventionist camp will get critiqued and accused of being useful idiots. So well, that's exactly what Putin wants. He wants the American empire out of there, so it makes his job easier. Yeah, I understand that. I, I'm not a useful idiot in that regard as much as, yes, his end goal may be benefited from the American empire withdrawing its sphere of influence or shrinking its sphere of influence. That's the inevitable nature of conquest and you know power vacuums and things of that nature. I understand all this stuff, but it doesn't change the fact that the American empire is so overextended that we will ultimately bankrupt ourselves and cause ourselves catastrophic financial damage, not to mention the damage that we've wrought upon the world that is exponential and potentially growing in the not too distant future if we don't get our heads out of our asses. So that's my primary concern. I Look, I will still advocate on behalf of some sort of peace re resolution between the Ukrainians and the Russians. But I'm not willing to risk World War III to decide exactly where that border is drawn. And I don't think that any American should feel as if they have the capacity to dictate that. It's just so, it's so, you know, globalist and paternalistic. Like we're the, we're, we're the parents of the world. We're not. I mean, we shouldn't be. And ultimately we, we won't be much longer because economic uh, realities are going to smack us in the face. So that's what's coming, like it or not. I would like to have it happen in the most peaceful fashion possible, you know, where America can still maintain some of its financial capacity and even its military might, if you're concerned in that regard, but just withdraw, withdraw from the world, allow some of these skirmishes to sort themselves out, negotiate from a position of still moderate power where you can actually hopefully help bring peace as opposed to growing additional conflicts. That, that ought to be the pathway that America in its decline phase of empire sets out to, to do. And as of, as of now, that's not what we're doing. Not even close. We're going the complete opposite direction. And this is the reason that I have you know, spent so much time over the past few weeks arguing in, in, you know, in favor of the Palestinians' grievance argument is because 100x of the aid that the US empire or the government sends to that part of the world goes to Israel. And, you know, a very small portion of it goes to the Palestinians. And it's usually just, you know, aid, like relief, because these people, they don't have drinking water, they don't have enough food. It's yeah, they need aid. Um, largely because of the circumstances they, that they've been put in. But, and I don't support the aid either. Let's just to make it clear. I don't support any dollar, any tax dollars from the Americans being stolen from them and sent abroad. But in terms of the aid that I'm being robbed to give, yeah, I would greatly prefer that it be food aid to starving people, <laughs> you know, like, of course, as opposed to bombs for Israel, which is what we're sending. Potentially, they're going to be voting this week for $14 billion to be sent to Israel to bolster their aid or their, their defenses. But the reason it, it concerns me is that we have multiple carrier strike groups in the Mediterranean right off the coast of Israel. And we have all of these politicians, which I'm going to play for you now, that are just beating the drums as loudly as possible. As loudly as possible. I've already, over the past couple of weeks, I've already played you clips from Lindsey Graham. I'm going to try and avoid Lindsey Graham, but I'm going to give you a bunch of presidential candidates that are running the same script. The same 2002 to 2005 script. You're with us or you're against us. You, you, you're with Saddam or you're with 
the free world. It's the same fucking script. It's so obvious. And in this particular situation, these, these windows where like war is being fostered, it's this rare opportunity where people that genuinely are non-interventionists, genuinely want peace, genuinely hate war to actually give voice to both sides in the conflict and say, we see the, we see the reasons, but it doesn't make the loss of innocent lives. Okay. We see, I understand why Israelis or Jewish people all over the world would want Hamas to pay an enormous price. On the inverse of that, I see clearly why the people in Gaza want the Israelis to pay a price. I get it. I understand the, the, the mistreatment that you've suffered for so long. 7,000 of your, your people being killed over the past 15 years just through random sniper fire and bombardments. It's awful. You've had to go through checkpoints. You haven't had a, you know, a real open border or a ability to travel or vote. I get it. I totally understand why you'd be furious. It doesn't make it okay to kill innocent women and children. It doesn't. And on the inverse of that, Israel. I understand 1,400 of your people, vast majority of them innocent people. Maybe all of them innocent. I don't even know. Some of them are soldiers, but you want payback. You want to flush out Hamas. But in that process, what does it entail? Millions of innocent people driven from their land, many tens and tens of thousands. I think there's the current figures are about 8,000 uh, people have been killed, half of which approximately have been children. That, that leaves a, not just a mark on the Palestinians, but it also leaves a mark on your soul. And it, it will only bring greater death and destruction for everybody involved. And it, it has the potential to grow into a multi-front, just horrific war. And it's like, this is how things start. I know a lot of people are like, why are you so focused on this? Because this is how, th this is how world wars start. We already have these multiple little tiny fronts. I mean, obviously Russia, Ukraine's a pretty big front. Um, and I, I'm not trying to diminish the, the loss of life in Gaza, but it's a small front in terms of landmass. And, you know, you, you treat those people so egregiously because you're righteously angry and rightfully so, but then you, you cause such horrible consequences for the people that aren't responsible for it. Well, the Muslim world is paying very close attention and the rest of the world, really the Western world, the college kids, they're all paying close attention. I mean, this has the pot potential, not just for world wars, but like civil wars, like a lot of civil wars. I, I know it sounds like I'm overstating it and maybe I am, I hope I am. Um, but if you look at the protests, these are serious. These are very, very serious. So I just, I'm imploring deep thought and consideration. Really reflect on what you want to see in the world as opposed to recompense and retribution. And, and I'm speaking to both sides here. And because of that, I'll have a lot of people angry at me. And I've, I've lost a ton of followers and viewers and listeners because of the position I've taken on this. Um, I don't care though, because it's too important. And I hope that 
you know, even if you don't agree with me, that ultimately you will at least consider my opinion and, you know, put it into a slot in your brain with all the other opinions that you're hearing over the, the past three weeks, the vast majority of which are just fucking raging for blood. And just consider if that's really what you want. Is that is that really what you want? And I hope, I hope at the end of it, you'll conclude it's not. And hopefully these, uh, these wounds that have not been able to heal in the Middle East will ultimately be able to be healed. I know it's, <laughs> it's pretty delusional to think of that right now. Um, but I'm still going to hope for it and we'll see what happens. All right, let's hear some uh, neocons losing their shit over everything over the past month. Ugh. First up, we have the foreign minister of Iran speaking in front of the UN, giving a dire warning to the West. I warn if the genocide in Gaza continues. He says, I warn if the genocide in Gaza continues. They will not be spared from this fire. They will not be spared from this fire. It is our home and West Asia is our region. He says it is our home and West Asia is our region. So I just wanted to start with that because I think it's important to understand, you know, whether it's bluster, which hopefully it is, uh, there's a lot of other nations that are from the Islamic world or the Arab world for that matter that are viewing this as, uh, you know, their business. And if it's America's business, it's kind of hard for, for us to say, oh, that's not your business. It's like, well, if it's not their business, it sure as shit ain't ours, but we're over there giving billions of dollars to one side in this fight. So, uh, yeah, it, this is, this is the, probably the most selfish reason that I'm concerned about this is that, you know, blowback towards America and Americans, uh, seems increasingly probable. Let's hope I'm wrong there. All right, let's bring in the next one. Today's episode is brought to you once again by NadeauShaveCo.com. N-A-D-E-A-U ShaveCo.com. Promo code LOCKDOWN. Pick up the best razor in the game. I use it. I love it. It's single blade, pure stainless steel. This thing is rad. Minimize ingrown hairs, razor burn, and irritation with their 100% recyclable, plastic-free razors. Veteran-owned, family-operated. These are legitimate, high-quality, the highest-quality razor I have ever owned, and I'm not exaggerating. N-A-D-E-A-U, shaveco.com, promo code LOCKDOWN. Enjoy your shave. This is journalist Lee Fang interviewing a bunch of American uh, congressional representatives about Israel. Uh, we're, we're talking to uh, members of Congress about Israel and the U.S.'s relationship. All right, y'all go. The U.S. has an intrinsic interest in making sure that Israel not only receives our best prayers and offers of success, but our armaments, our money, and our ability to make sure that in a very dangerous reason, this democracy survives. There are some uh, biblical prophecies that say that control of, of Jerusalem by the Jews uh, is important for the second coming of, of Christ. This entire matter is based upon faith of our maker of our creator but it's also faith of a chosen people this is uh, congressman lauren bobert of colorado In israel can you talk a little bit about the importance of the u.s relationship with israel there have been two nations 
created to glorify God. Israel and the United States of America. I will bless both, I will honor both, I will do all I can to stand and defend them. So there's just two of them. Uh, it's, a, it's a longer clip, but you get the idea. First up, GOP presidential hopeful and buffet extraordinaire, Chris Christie. Let's hear what he has to say. We know that they hide behind the falsity of free speech. Mm, falsity. There is a difference, everyone, between free speech and hate speech. Is this Ibram X. Kendi or is this a GOP presidential candidate, Chris Christie? I can't tell. Interesting. There's a difference between free speech and hate speech. Oh, is there now, Chris? There is a difference between free speech and violence. Yeah, no sure. There's a difference between incitement and free speech. And what's going on in our college campuses today is not free speech. Well... Yeah, kind of it is actually, Chris. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. If people say, uh, you know, from the mountains to the sea or whatever, Palestine will be free. Like, look, you can say that it has undertones that you find disturbing, whatever. It's still free speech, though. Free speech isn't about language that is, like, accepted by all. The whole reason we have this entire precept is that we want to be able to say unpopular things. When did we forget this? The GOP, when it came to racism and transphobia, no such thing as hate speech. As soon as it's about Israel, hate speech is the light switch is flipped back on. It is hate speech. What's going on on our campuses today is inciting violence, is inciting fear. And we now know we now know the impact it's having on our children. Not one Jewish. How about you pull your kids out of these colleges if you find them to be so reprehensible? I agree that they are teaching your kids terrible things. But the free speech aspect of college is not the problem. It's the ideology. This is not complicated. Child should have to hide in their dorm or their apartment because of fear of their safety or fear of ridicule and yet on college campuses all over this country that is happening today and it is happening with the acquiescence of university leadership all throughout this country now i will say there was some kids that were allegedly trapped in a room by some pro-palestine protesters it's like a 10 second clip. I'm not even gonna play it because I don't have any idea what the legitimacy of the claims are. But if it is true, then yes, it's terrible. I mean, that's, I don't know if it's kidnapping or false imprisonment or something, but it's like, these are the, when, you, when your speech goes into the territory of violence, well, then it's illegal because it's not speech because it's action. But if we get into this ridiculous parsing over hate speech versus free speech, well then very quickly we don't have free speech, folks. For everybody from, you know, libertarians to the right wing that have been called fascists and Nazis and all sorts of terrible things and racists for the past decade, ever since this woke mind virus took over the goddamn country, 
we should all realize that like if if you go down this hate speech path well then all of our speech which is not fascist or racist or transphobic or whatever well they can make that illegal too they can prosecute us for that too because it's not about protecting any particular you know minority group it's about empowering the state to dictate what our conversations can consist of you guys know how this works we have been here before haven't we yeah yeah we've been here before debating whether or not free speech should be permissible it was the foundation of our country and we decided yes and then we put it in the fucking bill of rights as number one because we were like yeah yeah we really mean this shit <laughs> you know like <laughs> we've had this debate before yeah we have had this debate before we already concluded the answer is you can't do it constitutionally protected goodness gracious been here before this is not the first time that we've seen people expressing this and saying as they observe it it's not our problem the world knew what was going on in germany in the 1930s and they said it's not our problem oh my god i gotta stop it you get the point <sighs> look anti-semitism isn't cool okay don't be an anti-semite but can we at least agree that we ought to be able to speak freely even if it's unpopular even if it's terrible ideas what happened to like oh i got the better idea so i'm not afraid of debating these people where did that go because that's still where i'm functioning i'd like to debate these topics i'd like to have conversations i would very much like to not criminalize protests or speech could we could we not do that well you know gop their donors say yeah we kind of do have to ban all that sick here's donald trump showing where his bread's buttered too on that terrible saturday morning the world saw once again that the conflict between israel and hamas is not a conflict between two equal sides this is a fight between civilization and savagery between decency and depravity and between good and evil there is no comparison between a group that worships death and a group that cherishes life and cherishes our nation. Every single life that is lost in this conflict is on the shoulders of Hamas, Hamas alone. Is this reminiscing at all to George W. Bush? I think if you play back the beginning of this episode, you'll, you'll hear a lot of similarities. It's Hamas alone, and I think you have to really add in the word Iran, Iran, people don't want to talk about it. Oh, yeah. no one wants there to can be it. no sympathy, no excuses, and no escape from these monsters. And we will, uh, we will do what has to be done. Oh my God. So yeah, that's the, the great hope for America first. Donald Trump says that, uh, you know, Iran, no one wants to talk about it. Well, I haven't found a GOP hopeful that doesn't want to talk about Iran right now. Or Hezbollah, for that matter. There's just no hope for non-interventionists from the GOP side. I'm, I hate to break it to you. You know, I was on with uh, Dave Smith last night on Part of the Problem. And we talked about this and it's like, you know, he and I were 
both we were messaging each other privately you know talking about like man since he's not gonna run should we just like throw a hat in the ring behind rfk vivek you know maybe some other gop hopeful rises from the ashes and you know seems like he's got a chance to win that's truly truly you know thomas massey-esque that like wants genuine non-intervention genuine america first genuine america only because that's really what i am i'm not america first i'm america only i don't want i don't want aid i don't want military i don't want anything our our country cannot sustain it we have to batten down the hatches we have to bring our troops home we have to bring our our funds home we can't continue to just deploy them to everybody that has needs all across the world because it's really not about their needs it's about our control we all know this we all know the reason but we're losing control we're losing our our capacity to actually be this global hegemon because financially just math wise it will not it will not continue so anyways dave and i are, are floating around you know Vivek and RFK. He's had both of them on the, on his show. I've had Vivek on mine. Um, you know, we followed their campaigns very closely. RFK, f- phenomenal when it comes to, I mean, at least rhetorically. I just assume that when I say phenomenal, I mean rhetorically. I have no idea what these people would do in power. They could be totally deceiving me on all fronts. But rhetorically, great on the FBI, CIA, uh, Ukraine, non-intervention, and the COVID era. You know. That's offering me a lot. Terrible on a bunch of other stuff. I'm not going to recap that. It doesn't really matter. Vivek, fantastic on, once again, FBI, uh, deep state, getting rid of the bureaucracy. Uh, I'm sure he'd be in favor of cutting taxes and regulations too. Uh, I never really talked to him about that. Great on ESG, DEI, and pretty good on non-intervention. He was. I didn't like what he had to say about the cartels in Mexico, but... He was pretty good on the rest of it. And I didn't love what he had to say about Taiwan either. Uh, but, you know, for a GOP hopeful, that's about as good as you can ask for. And then Israel had its terrorist attack. And, you know, RFK, even before that, had already kind of, you know, kissed the ring. And over the past couple of days, uh, I, I read the tweet that Vivek put out yesterday. But it's like, it's a, you know, it's a, uh, what do you say? something to the effect of like it's a chosen land for a chosen people and you know it's just like exactly what you would expect someone who's you know under the thumb of the israel lobby to to say and it's just super disappointing so you know that's my perspective is like this is the reason that libertarian party exists because they're really from the federal level left and right there's like there's always a war that they want that their donors want and really the only people that are genuinely non-interventionists are us like that's it <laughs> as far as i can tell i hope that there's more out there I, I particularly the america first MAGA movement i hope many of you are watching going no no i am with you i do not want to send my sons and daughters to the middle east again i don't want to send them to ukraine to fight russia i don't want any of this okay i'm not talking to you and and thank you <laughs> but in terms of the the candidates on offer oof oof doesn't look like we got much of a path here folks so i hope i'm wrong but it ain't looking good and it's not just presidential candidates either after a few weeks of having no speaker of the house where they couldn't rob us blind and start more wars well the the long battle is finally ended and who did we get well just an evangelical lunatic known as mike johnson here's what he has to say as i uh took the gavel our our work began and we passed the resolution as you noted 
in, in, uh, in strong support of our strong ally and great friend Israel. We had to do that. And then I flew last night to Las Vegas and spoke to the Republican Jewish Coalition, as you noted, uh, to, to send a further signal that this is an, a priority for our country. and We cannot allow the brutality and the just unspeakable evil that is, that is happening against Israel right now to continue. We're going to stand with our friends. So his very first priority. Look, I can understand why you have to do it, but it, it, <laughs> when it's your first priority, I start to get some questions as to like, what's your allegiance here, buddy? Are you really America first? Because it definitely doesn't sound like it to me. And one more clip from him. Steve Scalise mentioned that our, my first act as the speaker was to bring the resolution to make formal and, and official in the congressional record our resolve to stand with Israel and against the barbarism of Hamas and all of its accomplices. But I, I want you to know, yeah. It's not an accident that the first resolution was for Israel and my first trip was to come and be with you. I want everybody to know where we stand. It's not an accident. In case, in case you thought that Clinton was overstating it. Thank you. Thank you. I hope they hear this around the world. I hope they know where we stand. There's no ambiguity about this. Jewish students today are no longer feeling safe on their college campus. It's the same. It's the same story from Chris Christie uh, speaking at the same event. So no huge surprise there. But just to go to show like why I'm concerned about the trend of things is like as soon as the neocon, uh, you know, nerve gets struck. This is the type of stuff that they start to pass for articles. You got France bans all pro-Palestinian protests. Hasn't stopped them. There's been enormous protests as a result of that. Then you have Florida. DeSantis bans pro-Palestinian student groups from college campuses. As far as I'm concerned, a clear violation of the First Amendment and the right to peacefully assemble. Then we have waving Palestinian flag may be a criminal offense. I think this is, says Home Secretary also suggests clamp down on pro-Arab chants in a letter that will concern free speech activists. Um, yeah, that's in England. And then last one, Berlin police breakup banned pro-Palestinian rally. So Germany as well. And it's just kind of the whole Western world is abandoning its, its belief in free speech. Look, I understand the concerns. I do. I understand the concerns about anti-Semitism. I've been studying this issue for the past three weeks straight. I've really dug into the history and, and you know, why Israel was created. And I understand the, the atrocities and particularly the pogrom or pogroms that, you know, gave them the, uh, the incentive or the imperative to, to begin that project. And what a project it was. You know, let me also say real quick, as a libertarian, you know, someone who wants a homeland for my oppressed people, <laughs> you know, um, I, yeah, I look at look at the New Hampshire project, the Free State project. Like that's that's kind of the same framework. So it's not that I like I I don't begrudge anybody that wants to have their own homeland. It's just that you know it's causing a lot of problems <laughs> right now. So I think it's important that we reflect on you know everything that's going into the the equation here and not lose all of our hard fought you know values and freedoms that we have upheld for so long. And we're so hard fought to get to begin with. 
I don't want to abandon all that. Now you might be thinking, yeah, Mike Johnson hasn't been great, but like he hasn't actually said that America would intervene, Clint. So aren't you per perhaps misreading what he's about as the Speaker of the House, this America First wing of our political establishment? Uh, yeah, he he does he does take it there. I hate to break it to you. Now we can't allow Vladimir Putin to prevail in Ukraine because I don't believe it would stop there, and it would probably encourage and empower China to perhaps make a move on Taiwan. We have these concerns. Um, we're, we're not going to abandon them. We, we want to be cooperative. We need to work together on this, but we, we owe it to the people to know what the plan is, where the money's gonna be spent, and we need some auditing for the dollars that we've already sent over there. These are not tough questions, right? One thing that House Republicans are resolved on is that we must stand with our most important ally in the Middle East, and that's Israel. Um, we will, I, we, we certainly hope that it doesn't come to boots on the ground. Uh, if, if it comes to that, and we communicated this to the White House staff as well today, that um, you know we have the Article I power in the legislative branch of government, and they have Article II. They have very limited authority on what they can do to respond without coming to Congress to seek consent. And even my Democrat colleagues, Sean, that are uh, at committees of jurisdiction understand this in the, the Foreign Affairs Committee. And you've had comments made by the leaders of Iran that they themselves may get involved in a conflict. If that happens, correct me if you think I'm wrong, I would, bet, I would say all bets are off in the Middle East. We could have a full-out war in the Middle East. Any discussion about the fact that we've completely encircled Iran? <laughs> you know, like, like, can we just have that conversation? I'm not saying Iran's like filled with good, uh, you know, good leadership, but like, can we at least discuss why, why they might be threatening or you know beating their own war drums no no conversation israel at the center of it and at that point if israel's existence is put in jeopardy i don't think prime minister netanyahu who i've known for almost 30 years i don't think there's anything he won't do to preserve and protect his country from people that have committed their lives to destroy it he has to do that and around here people uh, throw around the phrase existential threat. They have an existential threat every day. I mean, their neighbors want to eliminate them and wipe them off the map. What frustrates me about that is like, it's obviously true what he's saying, but the issue is that you have to consider the existential threat perceived or real of the Palestinians. It's like, I can totally relate to the Israeli concerns completely. Yes, they do have a bunch of nations around them that aren't very fond of them. But why can't why can't our leadership also look at the Palestinians and and just apply the same logic there? They're currently being shelled. Currently, it's not hypothetical. These people for weeks have been being shelled mercilessly, in the dark with no electricity or power or internet until a few hours ago, because the American government apparently pressured the Israelis to turn it back on. Thank goodness. But man. Can we just can we just apply the same moral principles to these people, regardless of whether or not they're our ally and just treat them as if they're actual human beings? That would be a great step in the right direction, I think. I'm not going to show you too many of the protests, but just one example. Enormous, enormous protests going on here. In Stockholm, Sweden. <laughs> Nice. 
scream intifada at the end of that. Ooh, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> Here's the protest in Los Angeles. Yeah, not exactly small, huh? And this is the one that concerned me the most by far. This is in Turkey, and it looks like 100,000 people. I mean, it looks like it's probably 100,000 people, but I could keep going on and on. It's Melbourne, Australia, and London, and, you know, all over the world. Um, obviously, a ton of places in the Muslim world, Indonesia, and it's gigantic. Tens of thousands of people in most of these protests. So it seems to me that the... The world is finally speaking out on the behalf of the Palestinians' condition. And, uh, you know, it's tragic that it comes in the aftermath of Hamas committing such an atrocious terrorist attack. This is probably what Hamas wanted. I don't think that they could have possibly imagined that the world would actually, you know, come to their defense, at least in terms of their condition, uh, not in terms of their action. I hope the vast majority of the people that are prote protesting on behalf of the Palestinians are not doing so on the behalf of Hamas, but I, I don't know their minds. I can't speak to that. Uh, but it's not, it's not isolated to college campuses, folks. This is a very, very big deal. Um, and hence why I've, you know, spent the past couple of weeks focusing on this topic almost exclusively. And I'm sorry, and I know you're probably overwhelmed with it, but I hope that uh, this helps give you more insight as to what's transpiring, how global in nature it is, and why it's worth paying attention to. And this just happened today. There was a flight from Israel that landed in, uh, where is it? I think it was Dagestan from Tel Aviv. And this is what happened. The locals uh, flooded the airport to try and kidnap, it looks like, I can't say for sure, try to kidnap the people off the plane from Israel. They aren't waiting for TSA to check them in. Um, so yeah, this is the this is the reason I'm so concerned. Is that like you know once you have a particularly you know sectarian type of violence and, and a an inflamed kind of religious fervor and a war based off of this religious framework that it's you know oppressor versus oppressed and our our real God versus your fake God and all of this type of stuff. That's when real real wars happen <laughs> historically uh it's kind of weird to think that it could happen in you know modern times but it looks like it's a distinct possibility so let's be careful let's be careful to give you kind of a global reason as to why you should oppose war and oppose anything that could lead towards catastrophic destruction of human life if you if you needed any more reason to be opposed to that here's a good one it only benefits the worst people amongst us here's joe biden talking about how he might take advantage of these current circumstances. You know, my mother had an expression, out of everything terrible, something good will come if you look hard enough for it. I think this presents us with some significant opportunities to make some real changes. You know, we are at an inflection point, I believe, in the world economy. Not just the world economy, in the world. It occurs every three or four generations. Fourth turning. As one of my, as the uh, one of the top military people said to me in a secure meeting the other day, 60, 
60 million people died between 1900 and 1946. And uh, since then, we established a liberal world order, and that hadn't happened in a long while. A lot of people died, but nowhere near the chaos. And now is the time when things are shifting. We're going to, there's going to be a new world order out there. And we've got to lead it. We've got to unite the rest of the free world in doing it. <laughs> got to love it when they just come right out and say it, huh? All right. Anyways, you, I think you get the picture. Uh, don't go along with this. Don't buy into the bloodlust. Don't buy into the partisanship or, you know, it's, you're either with us or against us. Or there's a good guy and a bad guy. It's not that simple. The people that are, are trying to get you into that mindset are only doing so to benefit themselves. It's quite clear. These people, like, I don't, do I have to convince you that these people don't actually care about you? That they don't actually care about the Israelis for that matter? Most of them don't even care about the Palestinians. I'm sure most of the people in the streets don't even really care, you know? I hope, I hope some of them. <laughs> I hope most of them. I'll be nice. Um, but certainly from the political establishment, my goodness, if you're still putting your trust in these people, I don't know what I have to do to convince you that you should stop. I'll end with this. We got, uh, you know, Bill Maher has this guest on periodically, and I cannot stand the guy, but he uh, apparently was on the board for his kid's school. This is Scott Gall Galloway and talking about what he did during COVID. Well, I was on the board of my kid's school during COVID. I wanted a harsher lockdown policy, and in retrospect, I was wrong. The, the, the damage to kids of keeping them out of school longer was greater than the risks. But here's the bottom line. See, I, like, I liked it. I liked it. But he's 10 seconds in, and he's already pivoting towards a direction I despise. Myself, our, our great people, the CDC, I'd like to think the governor, we were all operating with imperfect information, and we were doing our best. So it's, oh, it's, it's, well. Everyone's like, we're not bad people. We were working off of bad information. But we're actually good people. Don't hate us. We ruined your child's lives. We ruined the economy. <laughs> God, it makes me so mad. Even Bill Maher knows. He's like, uh, yeah, you got to kind of own that a little bit more than, oh, you know, let's move on. So let's, but let's learn from it. Let's learn from it. Let's learn from it. Let's hold each other accountable. But let's bring a little bit of grace and forgiveness in the, yeah. the shit show that West Hollywood. Yeah. Let's bring a little bit of grace and forgiveness. Hey, hey, how about the people that were actually aggrieved? Us? We get to we get to bring the forgiveness. You don't get to demand it of us because you didn't ask us if we wanted to go along with your plans, did you? No, no, you didn't ask us. You were telling us all the way around, all the way along. In fact, you were mandating because you were on the school board for your own children, and you're fucking up your own kids. And now you're telling me to to have a little grace. Where was your grace? If I want to give it, I'll give it of my own volition. The whole argument I was making all along is that I wanted to function off my own volition. I didn't want you to tell me what to do. Now, you're going to tell me to forgive you. No, that's not how it works. I forgive when I'm good and ready. <laughs> because you didn't forgive me when I didn't go along with your unscientific bullshit, right? That's the whole reason you're apologizing now. So maybe we shouldn't be listening to you. Maybe we ought to be listening to the people that didn't go along with the crowd and the bullshit science. Just a con, just a thought, just an idea. You know, mull it over. Think about it for a sec.
All right, I'll get out of here. Thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, you know, keep yourselves sane in this time. I know it's very challenging to be looking at all of the footage of this stuff. If, if you are, I hope most of you aren't. I hope you're watching football and enjoying time with your family and, uh, you know, playing catch with your kids and, you know, doing, doing fun, wholesome shit. Cause, uh, the world, the world's going to be a mess for a minute, I think. And I think most importantly, we should focus on our own, you know, mental health and well-being, and, you know, do what we can when we can, when we have the extra energy, uh, to try and try and help heal all of this. Cause goodness gracious, do we need it? So Thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, if you want to support my work, you can go to toploffs.com, pick up one of these fancy Liberty Lockdown shirts or libertylockdown.locals.com or subscribe on X and I'll follow you back. And what else? Oh yeah. Uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, leave a comment right below. Tell me if you disagreed with anything. I said a lot of controversial shit, so I'm sure you will. Uh, feel free to. I do try and respond and uh, hit that like button and share it around. If you agreed with everything, definitely share it around. I'll see you guys soon. Peace. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go?